So we're in a transitional phase uh, as a nation. I mean, looking at coming out of this pandemic. Now, I understand the virus is still with us and probably will be forever, but it's quite clear that we're entering into a new phase. And for as a church, we're looking forward to the ministry that is to come. And something that's been very much on my heart has been what kind of church are we are we to be coming out of this strange time and into a new day? What kind of church in our community? How can we reach out to our community? How can we be what God intends for us to be? Maybe you've been thinking about that for your own family. I know Linda and I have had a lot of conversations. This whole pandemic has it's caused us to ask, what's really important? You know, what, what is most essential and leave aside the things that just distract us from what matters. And I think as a church, we have to do something akin to that. And I've been doing that as a pastor, and I know others have as well, but that's been very much on my heart for many, many months. And when we had our staff retreat some three weeks ago, I had been much in prayer leading into it because I just felt this burden that it was important for us to get clear on how God would have us go forward. Well, this last week, it dropped into my mind in a way that felt, well, it felt like it was God that I needed to share with you, the congregation, what I shared with the staff at the staff retreat. That wasn't something I'd intended or planned, but, but I think... I think it's important for all of those who are members here at First Woodway and who therefore care about what kind of church this is and, and what kind of church this is going to be and how we're to go about to serve the Lord. I think it's really important that we, we be clear on those things. And so I want to share what I shared with the staff it was a great time that we had, time that we prayed together, and, and the staff had a lot to say as well. But I'm going to bring what I feel like God gave to me after many weeks of prayer. Now, I have to warn you, there are six points. That's really funny, isn't it? Well, we're going to, we're going to do three points. I mean, it's a Baptist sermon. You're only allowed to have three points. You can have a long conclusion. You have four or five, conclu uh, long introduction, four or five conclusions, you know. I'm about to end here, and then you go another 10 minutes. But three points, and what I am going to do is next week, I'm going to come back to some of the things I can't get to today because of time. But this is something very much on my heart. It, it's, it's something that I think is so important for us to be clear about if we're going to do God's will. Sometimes organizations, churches will have mission statements or vision statements, and we pretty much know from the New Testament what God has called us to do. But if you were to put it in just a phrase, what we're called to do as a church here in the Waco area, is we're called to be a Christian community serving a world in need. It's really that simple. That's what God wants us to do. Now, when we say Christian community, well, that's a loaded term because we're talking about 
a community that follows Jesus Christ, that lives under the lordship of Christ. Now, that's not just a vague statement. Oh, we're going to live under the lordship of Christ. No, we want Jesus Christ to be Lord of this church. How does that happen? Very specifically, it happens this way. Jesus Christ rules the church by his spirit through the scriptures. A church that has Christ present by the spirit and observes the scriptures, obeys the scriptures that have been inspired by the spirit, that church is under the lordship of Christ. And that's what we're called to do, to live under the lordship of Christ. So Christian community is distinctively Christian community. If you want a picture of what it looks like, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus lays out the alternative. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He continually contrasts his teaching with the teaching of the rabbis or even the practices of the world. He talks about how pagans pray and he says, you shouldn't be like them. Instead, the entire sermon sets out an alternative way of life, an alternative community, what John Stott calls a Christian counterculture. And so throughout that sermon, he makes that plain. And at the very beginning of the sermon, he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says you're salt. You have to be salty. You're light, and you can't allow your light to be covered up or put out by the darkness. The church must be a distinctively Christian community because the world needs an alternative. People out in the world, that's a brutal place out there. You know that. We're, we're in the world, though not of it. We live in it. We know it's a brutal place. There is hatred. There is lust. There is selfishness and betrayal. The world will, will cripple people, wound people, twist them up and distort their lives until their lives are nothing like they thought they would be and certainly nothing like God intended. That's what the world offers. The church has to be distinctively Christian so that when people come into the community, they see something very, very different than what they've experienced out in the world. So a Christian community serving a world in need. We serve because, because the Holy Spirit serves. You know, the word that Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit was parakletos, which means one who comes alongside to help. We can't turn to God or live for God. The Holy Spirit comes alongside and helps us to do it by his power and grace. Well, we are called by Jesus Christ 
to be a parakletos, to come alongside people and help. If we are spirit people, that's what we'll do. And so we don't solve people's problems for them. We don't take responsibility for their problems. We can't meet every need, but we serve people by coming alongside them and helping them find God and helping them live for God and being part of their lives and letting them be part of our lives so that God might bring salvation. That's what a Christian community is all about. That's what we're called to do. Now, how you do that, well, it's all, that's all important. We can talk about how we're to be a Christian community that serves a world in need, but how do we go about that? And that's where I have those six points. And that's where I just pray that you would open your heart and and hear my heart and consider these things and, and pray with me that God would help us to walk in them, that we might be the church he wants us to be. The first thing is this. You could call it our strategy, if there is a strategy to it, is we must soak everything in prayer. Tom talked about how the Holy Spirit fell from heaven on the day of Pentecost The people were gathered in the upper room and there was this rushing, mighty wind that came. What were the people doing when that wind filled the room and they were filled with the Holy Spirit? What were they doing? They were praying. They had been praying for days. They had been meeting day after day and it says in Acts 1, they were praying constantly. Self-confident people make plans and execute the plan. People of faith pray. Now, there may be a plan that comes out of the prayer, and then you have to actually put that plan into action, but self-confidence leaves off the prayer and plans and executes, but faith prays and lets God lead from there. We need prayer to saturate everything we do. The staff needs to pray before, during, and after every ministry. We need our life groups to pray. We need to pray as an entire church. We need to pray when we come together to worship. Prayer needs to be our life breath. Without prayer, there is no spiritual reality. And I can't think of anything sadder in the whole world than a church that talks about God and speaks of Christ, but knows nothing of the presence and power of Christ. It is prayer that opens heaven that the power might come. So the first thing we have to do, if we're going to be a church as God would have us be in the days to come, is we need to become much more prayerful than we've been. The second point is this. We need to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I'm all for planning, but we have to be open to the Spirit and what the Spirit is calling us as a church to do. And that might mean doing things differently than we've done them in the past. That might mean doing things that are counterintuitive, unexpected, and not strategic by human calculation. Let me give you an example of how this happened right in the Bible. So Philip is preaching the gospel in Samaria, which was a remarkable thing in itself because a lot of people didn't think the Samaritans could be saved. But Philip's preaching in Samaria and miracles were happening and people were believing. 
And the apostles came and prayed with the people and the Holy Spirit fell upon them all. This was an incredible awakening. People saved everywhere and God was moving in a great, among a great multitude. Now, if Philip was a Baptist, he would have said, I've got the system down now for how you reach Samaritans. He would have written a book about it he would have gotten on the Lifeway circuit. I know some of you don't know what that is, but he would have gotten on the Lifeway circuit and he would have gone everywhere telling people how they too can have a ministry to reach Samaritans. I mean, it worked, right? But that's not the way God worked. So here's Philip. He's in the middle of this great movement of God's spirit. And then an angel comes and says, sends him out into the wilderness and no one's there. I mean, why would he leave this place of fruitful ministry to go out in the wilderness? Well, it turns out there's an Ethiopian official in a carriage going, driving by. This man had been to Jerusalem. Evidently, he was Jewish or perhaps he was a God-fearer, but he was in Jerusalem to worship and he was heading back home to Ethiopia. And Philip happens to see him and the Spirit tells him, to run up to the chariot there and meet him and speak to him. And so he does. And in the course of the conversation, the Ethiopian receives Christ. He's baptized. He's now a believer. And from this, that point to this, we know nothing about him. We don't know what happened. Presumably, he went back to Ethiopia. But here's the thing that's very interesting. Even though the origins of the church in Ethiopia are historically obscure, scholars have been able to establish that the church in Ethiopia is one of the oldest churches in the world. It was established from the beginning, first the church in Jerusalem, but shortly thereafter, the church in Ethiopia. How do you think that happened? It happened because Philip left this great work in Samaria and went out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, and prayed with a single individual who then went home, and the church begins in Ethiopia and begins to spread. That was counterintuitive. You see what I'm saying? That wasn't what you would expect. That no one, no one consulting the early church leaders would have said, well, listen, if you really want to reach the world like Jesus said you're supposed to do, you should go out into the wilderness and just see if you can find somebody riding by. No one's going to do that. But the Spirit was at work. Folks, the Spirit may lead us in unexpected ways, and we're only going to know if we pray, and we're open to that. And I want us to be open to that. Who knows what God could do if we're available to Him? If we get caught up in the wind of God's spirit. I remember one time when I was a kid, my parents used to take Life Magazine. Many of you have never heard of Life Magazine because it hasn't been printed for how many years? How many decades? This is dating me, I know. But this is a magazine, it was associated with Time Magazine, if you've ever heard of it. But Life Magazine used to have a picture on the back, inside of the back cover every month. There was some odd picture, interesting picture, 
It was about the only thing I paid attention to. I was a kid. I didn't read the magazine, but I always looked at the picture. And I remember one time they had a picture of a straw that had been driven through the trunk of a small tree. A straw. There had been a tornado. The straw had been caught up, and the wind was of such force, it just drove it right through. I still don't know how that could happen. If I saw that picture today, I'd be sure it was Photoshopped. Maybe this was some kind of pre-Photoshopped. I don't know. But the image of that, something weak in itself, having this great power because it's caught up in a power greater than itself. That's what we're talking about, following the promptings of the Spirit. Don't you want that? Don't you want to know that you're part of a church that is following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and we are on mission with God? I believe God's going to help us do that. And that brings us to the third point, the last one I'm going to do this morning. I've got, I've got a lot more than I want to say, and I'll get to that next week. But the third point is this, that we have to, as part of everything we do, we have to preach the gospel in word and deed. The word and deed have to go together. We preach by what we do. You know, Peter was a man who knew a lot about grace, and he preached about grace. And he believed that a Gentile who came to Christ was a child of God, just like he was, a Jew who had become a follower of Jesus. So when he was in Antioch, he put aside the Jewish scruples with which he was raised. And though these Gentiles were not kosher, he sat down with them and ate with them and enjoyed fellowship with them because we're all one in Christ. He had already been taught by God that he should not call any person unclean. So he freely sat down with the Gentiles. But then some very conservative Jewish Christians visited Antioch. They were from Jerusalem. And they weren't so sure about this non-kosher thing. They wanted to be faithful to all their traditions, thought that was very important, even as they followed Christ. So they saw Peter and they thought, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? Well, Peter felt the heat. He felt the pressure. So he pulled back. He still preached grace, but he pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. That's when Paul stepped in. You can read about all this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul was a guy who spoke his mind. I mean, I admire Paul. I respect Paul. I revere Paul. I follow what he teaches as, as he teaches the gospel of Christ. But if Paul were here today, I might want to keep my distance from him. The guy spoke his mind. And he, in front of everyone there in Antioch, took Peter to task. And he rebuked him publicly and said that you, your life is not aligned with the gospel. The gospel's a straight edge and your life is going off tangent here. Why? Because even though you're speaking of a gospel that unites us in the grace of God, your actions say something different. And because his actions contradicted his words, what are people going to believe? They're going to believe the actions. 
We must preach the gospel in word and deed. What we say must be gospel and how we live must be gospel. Now, what is the gospel? You can slice and dice it a thousand different ways and still be biblical. Let me put it this way. Step out of this room, go to the welcome desk, look at the brick wall behind it. What does it say? God is good. Grace is real. Everyone's welcome. God is good. That's the beginning of the gospel. So many people think God is a hard God, a judgmental God, or perhaps an indifferent God. They're suffering and God seems to do nothing about it. They doubt the goodness of God. But God is good. He is always good. He intends and wills good for every human being. He is for us, not against us. He is for us, therefore he's against our sins. But hear me, it's not he is for us, but he's against our sin. No, he is for us, therefore he's against our sins. God is a good God, always a good God. And that's what we want to convey to the world that's what we want our community to affirm, this gospel that says God is always good, never evil. As James said, there is no shadow of turning with him. There's no dark corner in God's character. It is all good. So God is good and grace is real. Grace is real. Jesus Christ bore our sins and took them into the tomb and was raised again from the dead. He triumphed over all of it. Therefore, there is forgiveness. Not only so, he's poured out the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is the power to change. By the grace of God, every human being can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter how you have failed, your sins can be forgiven. God's forgiving grace is real. And no matter what addiction has a hold of you, no matter what bitterness rankles within you, no matter how troubled you are by your circumstances or other people or by your own flaws, no matter any of that, the power of God is real. Grace is real. You can change. Your life can change. That's the gospel. No matter what, it can change. That's the gospel. Jesus said that what he has brought is so revolutionary, so transformative at the core of your being that it can be compared to a second birth. He says, you are born of the Spirit, Somebody thinks, I'm, I'm so tangled up. I am so messed up. I just can't change. I've tried a thousand times. And they think they're beyond hope, but grace is real. You're not beyond hope. Paul says this grace brings about what could be called a new creation. Think of that. So the gospel brings hope. Not only that, the gospel enables us to hope not only for ourselves, but other people. It's because grace is real that we don't give up on any human being. Not a single one. 
no matter what their life is like or has been, we don't give up on them because Jesus Christ has died for them. God's grace is more powerful than the forces of darkness that may rule in their lives. We don't give up on anyone. I'll have more to talk about that next time. But let me get to the third part of the gospel. God is good. Grace is real. Everyone's welcome. And I mean everyone. Everyone is welcome. Jesus said, come unto me, you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Everyone is welcome. That is an essential part of the gospel. One of the things that troubled the Pharisees so much was the way Jesus kept hanging out with sinners. But the problem is, <laughs> if you're a sinner and you, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to hang out with sinners, right? We're all sinners. Jesus made that clear. We're all sinners. Everyone is welcome. Now, folks get a little nervous when you start talking like that, you know, because you mean, because I really do mean everyone. I mean everyone. People that are so far from the Christian way of life that it shock you even to see them enter into a church. But they are welcome because Christ died for them. It's so important. Now you say, well, wait a minute. We, we've got we to maintain standards. We've got to maintain boundaries. Yeah, absolutely we do, but you've got to think about it the right way. Remember, Christ is for us, therefore he's against our sins. We welcome everyone and invite them to share with us in the liberation we find in Jesus Christ and the mercy we find in Jesus Christ. I mean, we still call things by their right name, we still call sin, sin, error, error. That's all true. We don't, we don't change the truth to adapt to us, right? I mean, how many, times, how many times do we read something in the Bible and say, wow, that's true. Boy, I've messed up there. God, forgive me. I mean, the truth convicts us, right? So welcoming someone doesn't mean we just say, okay, well, anything goes. Of course not. Of course not. It doesn't go that way for us. What it means is everyone is welcome. And as Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he goes on to say. That means take my teaching on you. So we invite everyone. I mean everyone. And with open hearts and, and you know, just a, a friendly welcome we invite them to join us in following Jesus Christ. Again, I'm going to have more to say about that next time. But that's an essential part of the gospel. Without that, well, our deeds are denying the truth of the gospel. So God is good. Grace is real. Everyone's welcome. A church that is shaped by by those truths is a church that preaches and lives the gospel and can change the world. I believe that. I want so badly for us to be that kind of church. doesn't mean everyone's going to love us. 
in some cases means some folks are going to hate us. But they're not going to be able to ignore us. The early church shook the world, and they did it while being hated and persecuted. That's what I'll be talking about a little bit next week. I know God can do incredible things through us if we're committed to the kind of radical gospel we're talking about. So it's soaking everything in prayer. It is following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. What does the Lord want us to do? And it's standing for the gospel in word and deed. Amen. I've gone a little long, so we're going to close in prayer in just a moment. But what I want to do is invite you, if you've not met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can this morning. You really can. It doesn't matter. I hope you heard me say it doesn't matter what you've done or what your problem is. There's virtually no problem that you could mention that isn't, that isn't represented by people in this room. But the people in this room come back week after week because they found hope and help in Jesus Christ. They're not perfect. They struggle. I struggle. But it's one thing to struggle, but be on the upward ascent to eternal life. And it's another thing to struggle and feel yourself going under. You don't have to go under. When this service is over, if if you don't know Christ as your Lord, I want you to come forward. I'm going to be in the front. I'd like to talk with you. I'd like to pray with you. A new life could begin for you today. That's the truth. God is good and grace is real. And his grace will change your life if you let it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us into your service. And Lord, as we, as we open back up fully, Lord, as we begin ministering more freely in the days to come, it's been a long year, but Lord, the opportunities are rich, the challenges are great, and we want to be the church that you've called us to be. We pray that you would help us in that, Lord. May all of us in this room learn to pray. Lord, we want you to lead us by your Spirit, and we want to preach and live the gospel. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your goodness and your grace, and thank you for receiving us into your kingdom. And may you, by your grace, touch every heart and every life that all in this room might be saved and those who are viewing online as well. In Jesus' name, amen.